This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So, the end of Pasha's Ve'era last week. This week is Pasha's Bo. But I want to talk a little bit about the end of Pasha's Ve'era. So, at the end of Pasha's Ve'era, in Ve'era there were seven makos. In Bo there are three makos. Vav Aleph is, first two letters in Ve'era is, is equal seven. Vav and Aleph. And Beis and Aleph, this week's Pasha's Bo is three. So, this week we have Arbe, Choshech, Machas, Bechoras. And last week we had Dumb Today, Kingdom of Derek, Shkin, and Barad. The last one, the last mock in last week's parsha was Barad. And it says the following. Now Moshe Rabbeinu told Paro before he brought Barad, he said the following. He said, you have to take in your animals. Let me just say what it says exactly. Um, I'm sending you all my Magafas together. Okay? And he says, tomorrow there's going to be Barad, there's going to be hail. There was never hail like this before. And now, Moshe Beno gave them a warning and gave them a chance. And he said, and now, he said, "If you know what you if you know what you should do, you should gather your livestock and everything that you have in the field. Call Adam with Behema, all your servants and your animals, all the people. I show you much of and 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 bring them and 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 bring them home. And those who you don't bring them home, they're going to end up get hit by this hail, the huge huge hailstones, and it's, they're all going to get killed. So so, Moshe came to Paro and he said, "Listen to me." I'm warning you that there's going to be hail, fire, and all your animals that are going to be in the field, and all your human beings, and everything that's going to be in the field is going to be totally destroyed. So, before I bring the barad, take your animals and your people and your machine, whatever you got out there, and bring them into the barn, where we'll be protected. So he gave them a warning, okay? What happens? The barad, the barad, the barad happens, right? And Paro vayach habarad b'chol eretz mitzrayim. And Paro says the following. He says to Moshe Rabbeinu, vayishlach Paro vayikol Moshe l'Aaron vayom alehem. First time. Chatosi hapam. Ayve, I sin this time. Hashem atzadik. God, your God, Yudke Vavke, your God, is it tzadik? Vaani vaami harisham. But me and my family and, and, and my nation, we are the bad people. Why, why, what happened over here? He didn't say by Dom, Tzadeh, Kinim, Orov, Dever. All of a sudden by Barad, God, we were wrong. God, you're righteous. We sinned. What's going on over here that he's freaking out? He's going crazy. He never talked like this before. Question number one. Question number two. So... In Pashat B'Shalach, when the Egyptians ran after the Jews into the Absuf, so it says, Sus by Ramabayam, the, the horses got killed. So they asked the question, where did the Mitzrim have horses? Between Dever, which was a disease that destroyed the cattle, and Barad, which came down and killed all the animals, where did the Mitzrim have any horses? Where did these horses come from that, that, the, that the Egyptians were riding on? So the Mepharshim say, that they were the horses 
of the Mitzrim that listened to Moshe Rabbeinu and took their horses and their animals and brought them into the house. So they didn't get killed by the Barad. So they were the horses that they used to run after the Jews were these horses that were saved by the Egyptians, Koyore Hashem, right? They put, so, so it says, if you look in the Pasuk, unbelievable, that they were actually, uh, Mitzrim that feared, um, Hashem, Hayare Estevar Hashem, Me'avde Paro, the people who, who, the Egyptians who feared the word of Hashem, right? What did they do? They chased their, their cattle and their avodim into the houses. Those who didn't listen of Hashem, they left their servants and their animals outside the field and they got killed. So first of all, what is wrong with these people? The ones that didn't bring the animals into the barn. Moshe told you there's going to be blood. There was blood. Then he told you there's going to be frogs. There were frogs. He was six out of six. Whatever he said was going to happen, happened. So now he's telling you that the next maka is going to be barad. You better take your animals and bring them into the barn. Why wouldn't all the Mitzvim listen? Okay, so there's a joke that I heard. There's a joke where... They really did listen, and they brought the animals into the bar, into the, into the bar. So how come they were into the house to protect them? So how come they were back out again? So because they brought the house into the house, the wife said, get that horse out of my house. <laughs> so they were, they were more scared of their wives than they were scared of Hashem. But it's a joke, it's a joke, it's a joke, it's a joke. But on, on, a ser- on a serious note, what's wrong with these guys? Six out of six? Six out of six? And you're not listening, and, what do, you, what do you think? He's joking around? The last six he knew what he was talking about, and this one he's joking around? What's wrong with you guys? Okay. So first of all, you may not understand what I'm about to say, but I've dealt with a lot of people in my life, and you can be right six out of six times, they still, don't, they still won't listen to you. Because they're akshanim. They're stubborn. Right? And in their head they're saying, yeah, yeah, the last six times he's right, but this time he's not. There are, there are people like that. They're just people that are just stubborn and they just won't say you're right. They just don't know how to say you're right. They don't know how to listen. They're just so stubborn in their ways. So they were Mitzrim that even though he was six for six, they're like, nah, nah, nah. Ice, fire, hail. We don't get hail in, in Egypt. There's no hail in Egypt. We don't get rain. What is he talking about? So even though they saw it over and over and over, they still didn't think that it could happen to them. And there's a lot of things in life that we, that we, we, Somebody once got up and he said, for some reason people, there's one thing that people never believe that's going to happen to them. You know what that is? That they're going to die. He says, everybody, nobody thinks that way because if you would, you would actually use your time constructively. So everyone, for some reason, no matter how old, no matter where you are, it's like, okay, it's not going to happen to me. Everyone in the world has died. Moshe Rabbeinu died. Avram Avinu died. Yitzhak Avinu died, right? But for some reason, people are just like, nah, not me, not me. So some people are wishing that Mashiach will come, so they won't die. Other people are wishing Mashiach will come, so the bank's not going to take their house because they owe a mortgage. Some people want Mashiach to come because someone died in their family that they want to see again. Some people want Mashiach to come because their baseball team's not winning anyway, so he might as well come. But if they were in the Super Bowl, I would want them to wait till after the Super Bowl. It's a guy thing, right? Some people are like, Mashiach should come after Bloomingdale's has that big sale, not before, because, you know what I mean? If it's gonna come before then, 
And really, and, and, and a lot of people inside are like, well, when Mashiach comes, so you, your house is not your house, and I, I can, and I'm gonna go to Etchisrael, and, and your money is not your money, and every, and it's gonna be like the best times, because everyone's gonna be equal, nobody's gonna be sick, um, it's gonna be, it's gonna be unbelievable. And you should know, I told my class last night, that if you look in the Ramah, you look in this forum, a person like that is called an apikores, a heretic. A person who wants Moshiach so that sick people should get healthy or that they should see the person that in their family that passed away or that they should find the Shidduch or any other reason than the Shekhinah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Shekhinah is in Golos, is in exile. And when Moshiach comes, the world will see that there is a God and all the atheists will fall away. And all the other religions will fall away. And everyone will see that Hashem Echad, Ushmo Echad, and finally, God will be visible in the world to everyone. That is the only reason you're allowed to want Mashiach. If that, any other reason, because if Mashiach comes, there'll be no disease, you're an apikyrus, it says. That's pretty heavy. That's the only reason you want Mashiach, because God is suffering. Atheism and all the other things, you know, who wants to be God? If he's good to you, you take credit for it. It's like, I'm smart. You know, I'm good looking. That's why I'm married. You know, I'm smart. That's why I'm rich. If he's bad to you, sort of in your head, you blame him for everything. So you blame him for everything that goes wrong. And whatever goes right, you blame yourself for. It's a very hard job. That's why there's only one. It's a tough job being God. Half the world doesn't believe in you. Half the world doesn't like you. Right? And the people that even believe in you, they're not sure. So the reason you want Mashiach is, I want the world to see my God. I want everyone in the world to see the Shekhinah. That's the only reason, Muhammad, you're allowed to want the Messiah. That's it. There's no other reasons that you're allowed to want the Messiah. Just for the Shekhinah should not be in Golos anymore. A lot of us don't think that way. We're not taught that. Like, we want Mashiach now. We, why do you want Mashiach now? Because, you know, we'll have the base Hamigdash. No. That's not why. You had the base Hamigdash when we didn't have Mashiach. The reason we want Mashiach is that Hashem, God, should not be in Golis. Should not be in exile. When Mashiach comes, God is no longer in exile. Okay. So, getting back to here. So, so the ones who don't believe, they just don't believe. So even though they were right six times, they still didn't believe. But the question is, the ones that did believe, so they took their horses and they brought them into the house because they believed in Hashem and they said, we sinned. And then, when the Jews went out of Mitzrayim, they gave the horses to the Egyptians to run after the Jews. Meshuggah. You believe in Hashem and you took your horses into the barn to save them. Why are you sending them after the Jews now? God gave, God gave you Barat, he's going to destroy all your horses. What are you doing? Sir Rabbi Fisher, one of the shuls that I dominate, he spoke on Shabbos about this. It's so true. There is, well, Yira, Yira is not fear. Yira, everyone thinks that Yira Hashem means you should fear God. God doesn't want you walking around shaking, that he's going to barbecue you and put you in Gehenna and punish you. And if you do this, you do that. that is not the Jewish religion, that if you're going to do this, you're going to die and you're going to burn. And you're gonna, That is not our religion, even though some people, for some reason, that's how they teach our religion. If you're going to wear a short skirt, you're going to die. And one girl, she, she, whatever, she told me a story where her teacher told her, if you're going to braid your hair, 
you know, not sneeze stick, you're going to braid it, not in a regular sneeze stick, you braid. When you die, there's going to be worms in your hair in the ground. This is what she's telling these kids in school. I'm like, this is not what we're all about. This is not about burning and you're going to take your soul and they're going to throw you into your head. That is not what we're about. Yiras Hashem does not mean fear. I don't want my children to fear me. I don't, the Gemara says, you don't want to bring fear into your house. You don't you want your wife to fear you. You don't want your children to fear you. Because a house that's run on fear, there's no relationship. You don't talk to someone that, that you fear. You don't love someone that you fear. So what is Yiras Hashem? Or, wow. Or. So it's not a fear, it's much deeper than a fear. It's like, oh my gosh, look who's in the room. I've got to behave. Not that I'm scared that the person in the room is going to punish me. But wow, I'm in, I'm in presence of the king. I'm in the presence of the king. I'm not going to eat the salad with my hands. I'm going to use a fork. Why are you using a fork? You're scared if you use your hands, he's going to beat you up and throw you out? No, but it's the king. I'm in front of the king. I'm not using my, I'm not using my hands when I eat in front of the king. It's an awe. Now there's a periodic awe where something happens, and you're like, wow, right, a tornado. See a t- no one, I saw a tornado. I actually saw a tornado in the mountains when I was younger. The, the, the awe of a tornado, the power of just ripping trees and my bicycle, which went up, and I don't know where it came down somewhere, right? Ripped it. It's like, wow, look at Akkadish Baruch Hu's power. Or I was always very scared of lightning and thunder, right? And it was like, Look at his power. Thunder and lightning. The world shakes. It's awesome. But it's a moment. And a moment of awe doesn't last. But a person who lives their whole life in awe of God, just a flower, a fruit, that your body works, everything in the world is like, wow. That sticks forever. The Mitzrim who brought their horses into the house, had a moment of awe. Wow! Hail! With fire! That's amazing! There's a God! Sorry! We sinned! Sorry! Five minutes later, they're like, yeah, five minutes later they said, we're not letting the Jews out, because it's just a moment of awe. But a person who lives their whole life in awe, not the person who lives in that, they're not letting the horses out once they take it in. The Egyptians didn't have a life of Yira. They didn't have a life of awe. They had a moment of it. And therefore, when the moment was over, right, it's sort of like when you're sick and you're throwing up and you're like, Hashem, if you stop this and I get better, I promise you, Asher and I'm going to make brachas, and only going to make brachas in presence. I remember once I was so sick, and I was my guts were coming out. And I was like, Hashem, listen to me carefully. In between, I was like, listen to me carefully. Not only will I make brachas from now on, but I will not make a bracha when I'm alone. I will always find someone to say amen. Right? Now, I'll do that if this stops. It's sort of like bowing down, you know, you have to throw it, whatever. I'll do that at this time. You make all kinds of deals. And the next day, you're better. You're having a slice of pizza, and you're in your car, and you're making a brand name. There's nobody else in the car. Like, what happened? You just yesterday said that. That's all of the moments. You know, making promises in the moment. 
But if you don't live that way, you're going to make brachas for a day or two and it's going to go away. How do you know that, everyone? How do we know this? How do we know that what Rabbi Wallstein is saying, right? Not only because I'm always right. No, I'm kidding. But how do you know that what I'm saying is right? By the way, I told someone today something very fascinating. I met with a girl today. She's brilliant. Brilliant girl. Nice 16-year-old. Really, really, really special. But her, her spirit, her spirit is that she always argues. I knew that before she even started talking to me. Right? And, and, and she just, you could see it. She said this. And she, she said, I cannot sit in class and listen to a teacher say something that's silly. I'm using a nice word. She didn't say the word silly. She said stupid. And I'm not going to sit there, Rabbi Wallstein, and let her just say something very silly. And she repeated something that this teacher said that was very silly. This teacher said in her school that a woman's job in this world is to have children. And if she doesn't have a lot of children, she's not what Hashem wanted. She's not successful. And I said, this is your 10th grade Hebrew teacher? Yeah. I said, wow, what a statement. Let's see. Sarimenu, one kid. Guess she was a failure. Rivka, two kids. Terrible. She didn't have nine children. She must have been a failure too. Rachlimenu, two kids. Russ, one kid. Mashiach came from her and David Amela came from her. Where did she get this? She's like, oh, thank you, Rabbi. I'll go back and tell her. <laughs> so I told her, I told her, and this is, this is important. I didn't come to talk about this tonight, but this is important because whatever happens on the day of Chaburah, there's a reason. She's very, very, very smart. And I said, sometimes being right is letting other people be wrong. She's like, what does that mean? I'm like, if you love somebody, you're married, you love your husband, you love your wife, and she's really saying something that's really, you're having an, a, a, a disagreement, and she's really wrong. you got two kinds of husbands. One husband is going to argue, and I deal with this all the time, until she admits that he's right, they will stay up four, five hours arguing, 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 because at the end, he has to be right. And he'll twist her words, and he has to be right. You don't love that person. The person that you love is, I know she's wrong. I happen to know she's wrong. Because what she's saying, I saw she's wrong. What do I care? So big deal. So she's wrong. You're right. You're right. And I hear what you're saying. So now she's going to be happy. Now you know in your heart that she's wrong. I said to this girl, what's the right thing to do? The right thing to do, let her be right. If it's not kashris or something that's going to change the world, if you love somebody, even when they're wrong, let them be right. I said, you, this girl I was talking to, you always have to be right. I said, that means there's something wrong with you. That means there's something wrong in your self-esteem. Because a person who has low self-esteem always has to be right. Because if I'm wrong, then uh, it breaks me up. Who am I? I'm nobody. I'm like, a person who's right doesn't have to be right all the time. And we had, it was, it was very fascinating. We had, we had this discussion. She's a very, very bright kid and she, and she understood. And I said, you know, you have a lot of questions. I said, I want to ask you something. Of all these questions that you ask, how many of them did you stay up all night to research to find the answer? She goes, I, I don't. I don't really do that. I'm like, so they're not questions. 
I said, as a kid, when I had a question that I asked my Rebbe and it bothered me, and not as a kid, even today, where I will learn something, or a guy in shul will ask me a question and I don't know the answer, I will take out 400 svarim until I find that answer if the question bothers me. If it's a real question. Because if it's a real question, I will not rest until I find the answer. But if you ask 20 questions and you don't go home and stay up all night to find the answers, they're not questions. They're, they're answers to your self-esteem that, look, I asked all these questions. Ha ha. Uh, you know who I am? You know how smart I am? I can ask all these questions. So if you really want to know an answer, if you really care, you want to know about Hashem, you want to know if there's a God, don't come to Rabbi Wallerstein, I'm an atheist, and, and I, how do you know? And I'm like, did you, how much research did you do before you got here? I blew, there was a kid in my office two weeks ago. He's big atheist. All his friends are like, so he came and he's like, whatever you're going to tell me, it's not going to make a difference. I'm like, so what are, you, what are you here for? Well, my friend said I have to come. I'm like, yeah, but I don't have to come. You have to come. I don't have to be here. Your friends told you have to be here. I don't have to be here. Okay, okay, Rabbi Wallstein. Okay, okay. I'm like, so you're an atheist. You don't believe in God. He goes, nope. This kid's 17. I said, how much research did you do? Like, you're 17. You're making a statement. How many hours did you put into this? He goes, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if you don't believe in God... You must have studied God, disproved it. So you should be able to bring me, like, at least, being that you're 17, at least 35 years of research. He's like, what? I'm like, because you can't, 17 years of research, you, you didn't start, your brains didn't start working until you were 10, right, or 8. So how many years are you researching this? I said, so tell me, how much time did you put into learning about God and disproving it? He goes, I didn't, I didn't really put any time into it. I said, so I put in hundreds of hours of learning about God. So when you put in as much research as I, we'll have that discussion. I said, you don't have questions on God because you didn't look for answers. If you have questions, you look for answers. You didn't look for answers. You're coming here without any research. You don't have hypothesis. You didn't do a lab work. You didn't do anything. You're walking in, you're like, I want to be, I don't believe in, I don't believe in medicine. What do you mean? You're walking into Albert Einstein College, and you're making a statement, I don't believe in medicine. So the professor's like, oh, so can I see your hypothesis? Can I see your lab work? No, I didn't do any of that. Get out of here. You're a Meshuggah. You need to go to a mental ward, not to, not to Albert Einstein College. So I told this to this kid, I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? What are you, what are you coming in here with a statement like that? You know nothing about God, you spent no time. So I told this girl today, I said, you know what being smart is? Okay. They're the same. I learned from everybody. And I explained to this girl, and, and this is very important for everybody, because I said a prayer before I walked in that I need to say what you need to hear, not what I need to say. And it's nothing, what I'm saying here right now, just happened today, is nothing on the table. I didn't write this down at all. But I want to tell you what I told her. I said, you know what a smart person does? I said, I want to tell you something. I'm in Chinuch for 37 years. I heard a lot of speeches in Chinuch. I hear speeches in, 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 in therapy. I hear speeches from psychologists and I'm rabbis and I read a lot and there's a lot of nonsense. A lot of nonsense that a lot of people say. So I said, so does that, because this girl wants to leave yeshiva. She's in a Beisiaka and she wants to leave. She's had it. Because teachers say, if you don't have a lot of kids then you're not successful as a Jewish mother. Which is nonsense. So I said, you want to leave because of that? I said, what you need to learn is that this world, life, is a schmorg. Schmorgsburg, you go to a wedding, right? Now, you go to a schmorgsburg in a wedding, right? You got someone carving meat. 
You've got gefilte fish. You've got lox. The ladies are all by the salad, all the different beet salads and string bean salads and all the salads. And all the guys, straight to where they cut the meat, right? They're all online. And I said, nobody comes in and eats the whole shmarg. I know one guy, but most people don't come in and eat the whole shmarg and they have cake and they have this and they have that, right? I said, you come in and you take what you need. And the rest of the shmarg is not for me. Chinese dishes, no. This is full of sugar. Ah, soup. I don't like soup on the run, right? I said, so, but the shmog is for everybody. So you take what you need and you leave what we call the psilis, what you don't need. I said, people in life, if you want to grow and you want to learn and you want to understand, whatever that teacher said, that's nonsense, but she's got some good stuff to say too. You have to learn. Don't fight the nonsense. Don't pay attention to it. I don't pay attention, right, to the, what's it called, in the shmog, where all the ladies go, the pasta, I don't pay attention to the pasta station. I'm a guy. You don't go to a shmog for the pasta station. Or the quiche. I don't even know what, how to spell that word, right? With a Q, whatever. But the girls go there. We're going to the strami, salami, the franks, those, 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 what's it called? Those ribs that are soaked in brown sauce. And the lamb. And, you know, oh, they got lamb chops. And all the guys are like, lamb chops! They're cutting the... They're cutting the whole animal. Oh, let's go over there. They're cutting it, right? So do I say, well, the ladies are nonsense that they're eating pasta? Pasta's not for me. So I take this and I leave that. I said, I have a teacher that may say something that's not very smart. So leave it. Leave it alone. I don't walk out of the smoke upset. Oh, my goodness. They have pasta. And I don't like pasta. I don't want pasta, so I have nothing to do with the pasta. So I said, but why are you leaving the school? Why are you walking out of school? She she might have something very smart to say. So leave the psyllis, leave the nonsense, if you don't, whatever. Or whatever she said, go home, ask your father and research it, because you don't like what she said. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. If it bothers you, research it. Or ask her, where did you get that from? Show it to me. I don't want to hear you. Show it to me where you got it from. I'm very careful when I say things that are a little out of the box that I quote, you know, that I quote them from inside. I said, in the end of your life, you're going to be brilliant because what you're going to be doing is you're going to be taking from people in the world all the smart stuff and the, and the nonsense you're going to leave alone. I gave her an example. I said, you know, they have these big cooking classes. So many of the Arnavo events, we have these chefs that come in, right? So this, <coughs> this dessert chef came in. And she's showing all the women how to make chocolate cake. Now, every woman thinks she's a much better chef than the chef. That's for sure, right? So she's, and I, I happen to have been, it was one of our big events, I happen to have been there, and she's doing this chocolate thing, and you did it, and you got to mix it with this, and you got to put it with this, and you got to this, and I'm listening to these two ladies talk to each other. Ach, they call that a chocolate cake. Ach, ach. She says, that's not a chocolate cake. She has a cookbook. She has a cookbook. If she could have a cookbook, I could have a hundred cookbooks. That's a cake. That's what you call the cake, right? And they walk away, and they start. They go somewhere else. Right after the cake, she does her frozen desserts. Her frozen desserts are off the charts, and everyone's sitting there. Forget the cake. The frozen desserts, right, are off the charts. Stuff that you never dreamt you could eat or see in your life. Those two ladies never learned how to make those desserts because that chocolate cake turned them off. They know how to make a better chocolate cake. They were gone. But the smart lady said, okay, chocolate cake, it's not the best recipe I ever had. My recipe's better. My grandmother's recipe's better. The other cookbook is better. 
but she's got other stuff. Let's see how she makes frozen desserts. They walked away learning how to make the most amazing frozen dessert in the world. Don't give up and walk out because someone said something that's not so smart. Every person has something to teach us. So the smart people in the world, they learn. Don't be argumentative. You don't have to be right. If this person is saying something that's not so smart, maybe she has something smart to say. I'll just take that from the smartest book and I'll write that down. And all of a sudden, you're just collecting smart things from a lot of different people, and you become very smart. Not only God should judge anyone. That's not a question of judgment. I'm saying sometimes people say things that are not so smart, right? Is that a question? But everyone has something to give, whether it's art or music or something, or personality or behavior or midos. You can learn from every person something. Don't walk out of a school because some teacher said that a woman's judged by how many children she has. So maybe... I don't know where she got it from. Ask where she got it from. Maybe it's her own thing. Maybe her teacher taught her that, right? But that doesn't mean that she doesn't know anything else about anything else. And Baruch Hashem, she went back to school today. I'm like, learn. You don't always have to be right. Sometimes being right is wrong because you make the other person feel really bad. And sometimes being wrong is right because you make that other people, that other person feel really good. And in the end, guess what? When you, when the other person's wrong and you still say, of course, it's not Chal a Kashrit thing or something like that, but something that's unimportant and most big fights between husbands and wives, when you break them down, they're extremely unimportant. Most fights between girls and friends, very, very unimportant stuff, right? But it just becomes like, I have to be right and I have to be right. And you have this tug of war. Let the other person be right, big deal, where'd you lose? And guess what? Afterwards, you feel like, you feel good because you know you're right. And you didn't prove it to hurt the other person. You let them be right. It's a very big lesson. What? It's a, again, it depends what you're arguing about. If it's something that's that, if it's something that this person who thinks they're right and they're really wrong, and if you're going to let her go around like that, it's going to hurt her and other people. Then you have to tell her what's right. But most of our arguments are not that deep. You're single, right? You're single. You're single. Yeah, most of our arguments when we're married are not that deep. Mm-hmm. Trust me. No, they're very frivial. And when you break them down, they're over, they're really over nothing. Actually, afterwards, you look at each other and you're like, we fought over that? Like, what? See, it's a hard, the Makatrik, the, the Zvuz, the little, the little fly that gets in there and he, he tries to make you crazy. But he only gets in there, you know, flies don't eat whole things. Flies on an apple, they can't do anything. But if you take a bite out of the apple, they destroy the whole apple. If the marriage is whole, the this wolf can't get in. When you give him a little, a little machlekes, a little, then he gets in and he could, he could do such damage, it's unbelievable. You can't let him in. Shalom, shalom comes from the word shalem. Shalom comes from the word shalem. Shalem means whole. This wolf, which is the, the Yetzirah is compared to this wolf, cannot hurt anything that's whole. A, a, a fly can only get into things that are not whole. Right? You cut the bread, he gets into the bread. If you have a, a, a rye bread and it's not cut, the fly can sit on the bread. He can't, he can't do anything to it. The minute you open that bread, he's in there, he's gonna eat up the whole bread. So, so the shalim is the, is the keli, which is shalim, which is full, the Yitzhari can't get in there. How does he get in there? The minute there's a crack, have a good day.
He gets in there and he just, he, from a little teeny thing, can calm the biggest arguments. Never what I've seen breakings of marriage and parents and kids over the smallest little thing. Once he gets in there, once it's an argument, once the drama starts to unfold and all that stuff and everything comes flying in, once the Yitzhahari gets in, he's like a snake. He's in there, he's gonna rip it to pieces. We'll talk about the snake soon. Anyway, so, let's go back to, I went totally off the subject, now we'll get back onto the subject. Let's go back to what's up with this Barad, that all of a sudden, Chatasi, we sin, and God is right, and we are wrong. What happened in Barad that didn't happen anywhere else? Beautiful. And the Teretz is, and it has to do with marriage. I don't know why we're talking so much about marriage tonight, but whatever. Maybe it's someone's anniversary. The, the, the beauty is that Paro was like, okay, you made blood, we make blood. You made frogs, we made frogs. You threw down your stick, we made snakes. They were sorcerers. And they were wizards, and they were magicians, and they were sorcerers. And they could pretty much do everything. They couldn't do lice, but they were good at tricks. They knew how to do this stuff. Barad was two opposite, two opposite things working together. He said, only God could take two, take fire, because the fire was inside the water. And the water didn't put out the fire, and the fire didn't, didn't, didn't dissipate the water. So when Paro saw that, he said, that we can't do. We can't, as human beings, take two opposites and have them work together. That is not something we can do. So when he saw fire and water together, he said, Chatasi, you are a god. We did sin to you. And then alas, because again, the awe, a periodical awe, moment, momentary awe doesn't last. But he said, to make two things that are opposites work together, there has to be a god. And that's marriage. If you take the word Isha, Aleph Shin Hei, and you take the word Ish, you put a man and a woman together, which is Aleph Yud Shin, the, the same letters in Isha and Ish are what? Aleph and Shin, Ish. The two different letters, the one in Ish is a Yud, the one in Isha is a Hei. That's Hashem's name, Yud Hei. So as long as there's a Yud Hei, you can put Ish for Isha together. Remove the yud hey and you have ish. It doesn't work. So when God's in the marriage, it works. Without God, it doesn't, it doesn't work. What's the godliness, said Paro? You took two opposite things, you took fire and water, and you put it together, there must be a God. It's the same thing in a human being. A person's soul is fire. A person's body is earth. You're putting fire and earth together. One is Ruchnius, one is spirituality, one is Gashmius, which is this world, physical world. You're taking the physical world and your spiritual world and you're putting them together. It's like Barad. And the only one that could do that is the Kodesh Baruch Hu. The only one that could take, and that's what he said, fire and water, two opposites, spirituality, physicality, two opposites, putting them together, a man and a woman, two opposites, putting them together, there has to be a Hashem. There has to be a God. And that's why Barad was different than all the other Makos. Okay, so that, that answers that question. And the other question, why they ran after Klai's is because yes, they had a moment of awe, but they didn't, it didn't last because they, they didn't live in the awe of God at all. They were there by Dizarro. Okay. There is a very fascinating Chidah. But before we get to the Chidah, I want to tell you, there's a lot of, there's a lot of mentioning of Achdus. In Klai Yisrael, Achdus is that we got along with each other in the Mitzrayim, that 
if you look in, if you look in Choshech, very, very beautiful. If you look in Choshech, when Hashem brought darkness to the Mitzrim, it says the following. Stretch your hand to Shemayim, and it's going to become dark on Eretz Mitzrayim. No warning. Power didn't get any warning. Um, he, he stretched his hand out on the Shemayim. It became, it became very dark for three days. For, for those three days, they couldn't even get up. Besides darkness, they couldn't even, they couldn't get out of their chairs, right? But to all Klai Yisrael, they had light. So I heard a very, very, very beautiful, very beautiful Dvatayr on this. And the Dvatayr on this is, what's the true Choshech in the world? What's the, when is there true darkness in the world? When When a man doesn't see his friends. The true darkness is, when we as humans don't see another person and what they're going through, that is the Choshech Afeil of Bechol Eretz was what? that a man did not see his friend. And then it says that in the darkness, Moshe tells, let's see where it says this, he tells Klai to ask, this is actually here, this is unbelievable, this is a, a Vulna Gain. The Vulna Gain says the following, no, the Pesach says, Dabar no, ba'ozne ha'am, Moshe Rabbeinu, speaking to the ears of the nation, and a man should ask from his friend, and a woman from her friend, they should go, when, they, when they're leaving Mitzrayim, they should go to the Mitzrayim, and they should ask them for gold and silver and all these different things, right? Uh, what's what Rashi says here? So that, so that, what, 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 Hashem promised Abraham Avinu that they're going to go up or Chush Gadol. So the Vilna Gaon asked the question, why would the Torah call the Egyptians our friends? They were not our friends. They were our enemies. So why when Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to Klayosol, he said, Dabana, speak in the ears, right? Dabana ba'azne am, Moshe should speak in the ears of Klayosol. And, and, and the Jews should ask from the Egyptians for their gold and silver before they live. But he uses the word, Esrei'ehu. And each woman should ask Ru'usa. Why are you calling the Mitzrayim our friends? So the Vilna Gaon says, not what Hashem said, it's unbelievable. He said, when Hashem was saying, if you want the Egyptians to lend you or give you their things, the only way that they were going to be willing to do it is that they see you do it. So what the Vilna Gaon is saying over here is that he wasn't saying, ask your friends, the Egyptians. He was like, the Jews have to ask their friends and start borrowing and giving each other things. And when the midstream see that we do it, they'll follow. And Charlie Harari speaks about this a lot. We're called the light to the nations. And that, and it's brought down in many forums that what is our position in this world? What is the Jewish position in this world? So we're not better than the Goyim. We're different than the Goyim. Right? Every nation has their job. The Gemara talks about Asa built, built highways and roads and bridges, and another, and, and uh, maybe the Persians built bathhouses, and the, the, every nation has business and this and that. Every nation has something to do in the world. What's our job in the world? We're the soul. The world is a body. 
We're the soul. We're the spirituality of the world. We have to represent, what we're supposed to do in this world is represent the spirituality and the, the non-Jewish people are supposed to look at us and say, wow, look at this Jewish girl. She gets up in the bus every time, you know, every time somebody, uh, you know, it was a very fascinating video that was on, on YouTube. Someone showed me from a while back where they were doing some kind of thing on YouTube where they dropped a hundred dollar bill in the middle of San Francisco or LA or somewhere and then they were they were filming what the people would do with it right and uh, oh actually it was like an envelope from it like a TD bank or something like that and it was full of money so they were filming so this guy get pick, looks on the floor opens it up counts out like a hundred five hundred dollars whatever it was sticks in a pocket keeps walking so they caught him around of course they were calling they said excuse me whatever it is but they were filming different, how people how honest the human being is they have this on, on video this Jewish guy Right, he walks with a yarmulke, walks by, picks it up. He has no idea he's being filmed. Walks into the bank, the bank's right there, and says, "One of your depositors, or or with one of your bank, took it and must have dropped it outside." So here, you you know, I don't know. Take a look at your withdrawals. We took out five hundred dollars lately, whatever it is, and he gave it back. That is what we're supposed to be. We are supposed to represent with a big kid of Hashem. Or that guy, the famous guy that, uh, or the one from Lakewood that he that he that he was in a house. What did he find in a house? In the desk. A woman, right, a woman in the desk. He bought the desk, right, it was a very big kid of Shashem. That, that's our job in the world. So if you want, if you want the non-Jews to be good to us, you want the whole world to stop killing us, we have to stop killing each other. If you want the whole world to be good to us, we have to stop being good to each other. And if the whole world would see that we're good to each other, then they'll actually be good to us. How do you know this, says the Mullah guy? This week's parsha. If you ask each Jewish re'ehu, and you guys give each other, and lend each other, I guarantee you the mitzvah, they did that, and when they left, that's what happened. Okay. So I want to talk about being good for a moment. Beautiful story. Oh, I forgot the other book. I didn't bring the book. Oh, crazy story. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell it to you. I don't have it from inside, but I'll, I'll, I'll t- unbelievable story. It's chicken soup for the soul. You don't, you don't have this chicken soup for the soul. But I want to tell you a different story that I, that I, that I saw. So, so I was at my un- great uncle's two nights ago. We made his birth, his 90th birthday. Bali Ayanhara, Bali Ayanhara, Bali Ayanhara. His 90th birthday. He's an old man. And he's got wrinkles. You know, old people have wrinkles. And everybody got up to speak. And when did they ask me to get up to speak? So I said, I have to tell him a story. It's an amazing story. So there's this little Jewish kid talking about Achdus, about Ben Adam Lechavera. So there's this little, there's, it's Purim. It's a Purim day in a shul and they're having, for the kids, like a Purim spiel. They have clowns, whatever they have. Part of it is today, you know, they, they do these faces where they paint your face, the kids' faces. So they, so on Purim, what's better than, what's better to have at a Purim thing for kids than a face painter? So all the kids are online, little kids, they're all online. Then they're getting their faces painted. And there's an old man in the shul. I guess he didn't have a place for put Whatever, he's sitting in shul, saying to him, whatever it is, an old, old, old man, wrinkled face, old, old, old geek, like 95 years old. And he's sitting there saying this to him, and these kids are online right next to him. And this one kid turns to the kid behind him and says, why are you online? And the kid says, because I want to get my face painted. Because, but where's the man going to paint your face? Your face is full of freckles. That's what he tells this little kid. But your face is full of freckles. So the man's not going to be able to, you know how kids say what's on their mind. And the man's not going to be able to, to, to paint your face. You should sit down. 
and this little kid gets off the line and he sits down at the uh, he sits down and he's like totally tzibrachim because he he was a redhead and he was a freckle face his face was full of freckles and he sits down next to this old man I love this story I never said this story before and he sits down next to this old man and the old man looks at him the little kid and he says you know freckles freckles are the most beautiful thing in the world he says there's nothing more beautiful than freckles. So, you get back online. I get all choked up when I say the story. He says, you get back online and there's plenty that this man, that the painter can paint on your face. And don't let anyone ever tell you, freckles are the most beautiful thing in the world. And this kid looks at the old man and says, it's not true. And the old man says, I'm telling you, it's true. And he says, it's not true. So the old man says, what could be more beautiful than freckles? And the little boy looks at the old man and says, your wrinkles are much nicer than my freckles. I was like, wow. Wow. What? That story is very deep. The story is very, very deep. So I looked up. I looked up and I found a line. See, because these things I love, and I, I'm not some atheist that just walked into a room. I want if I, to, if I find a story that talks about wrinkles and freckles, I want to understand what are wrinkles. So I looked up, I looked up, what are wrinkles? Wrinkles in your, you know, when you, you know, wrinkles and wrinkles. So what are wrinkles? So let me tell you what wrinkles are. You ready? You'll like this because you're a poet. Wrinkles merely indicate where smiles have been. Wow. Wow. So don't be worried, ladies, about your wrinkles if you have wrinkles. Wrinkles means you have wrinkles on the side of your eyes and wrinkles on the side of your mouth. People who don't smile and are not happy don't have wrinkles because their eyes don't smile and their lips don't smile. So if you have wrinkles, wear them proudly. Stop spending all that money on that wrinkle-proof stuff. So what a story. What a story. But a little kid and an old man. I said it over by his birthday. I'm like, uncle, the more wrinkles, the more beautiful you are. That's so true. So true. What an what a emotional shift tonight. What's going on over here? Okay. So I'm not going to say the chidah tonight because it's very, very late. But I'll tell you one chidah. One chidah, which is mind-boggling. So this is for the girls who like, who like Gugulim and Gematrias. So he says the following. He says that who was Paro? Paro was a Gilgul. Who was he? He was a Gilgul of the Nachash, of the snake from the Etadas. And Moshe Rabbeinu was in this tug of war with this Nachash. Now, how do you know that Paro was the Nachash? How do you know he was a snake? You ready? So everyone asked a question in this week's Pasha. says, Vayama Hashem Moshe. Hashem said to Moshe, Bo el Paro, come to Paro. Hashem should have said to Moshe, go to Paro. Everybody asked this question. Vayama Hashem Moshe, Lech el Paro. 
not come to Paro. So the beautiful answer is that Hashem was with him. So Hashem was with him, so he said, come with me to Paro. So Hashem was with him, he wasn't alone. A lot of the Mepharshim answer that. The Chidot says something amazing. He says, he says the following. It's time to punish the Nachash. So, Bo El Paro, take the word Bo, right, and bring it to Paro. If you take the word Paro, it equals, pay is 80, ratio is 200, is 280, Ayn is 70, is 350, and hey is 5. Paro equals how much? 355. But if you bring Bo El Paro, the base and the Aleph to Paro, base equals 2 and Aleph equals 1 is 3. So if you bring the 3 to Paro, to the 355, what do you have? 358. Nachash, Nun is 50, Ches is 8, and Shin is 3, is 358. So Hashem said to Moshe, it's time for you to go to the Nachash, and it's time for the Nachash to pay for what he did. It's time for Paro to pay. Bo el Paro, add Bo to Paro, it equals Nachash. What was the payment? What was the Makkah that Moshe came to Paro to tell him about? What's the first Makkah in Pasha's Bo? Arbat. Locusts, grasshoppers. How's that a punishment for the Nachash? So last night I said, hold your hats. Here, I'm not going to say hold your hats. Amazing. The Torah is, see, this is exciting. I'm sure going to come to tell me he doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in the Torah. This, 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 you, can't, you can't make this up. You, can, you can't, no human being could make this up. You ready for this? Check this out. Boa Paro, come to the Nachash. What's the punishment for the Nachash? You're going to suffer with all your people with Arba. What does Arba have to do with the sin? So if you look in Bereshis, who did he cause to sin? Chava. What was Chava's punishment? I want to read you Chava's punishment. Hashem comes to Chava, and what does he say? Eli'isha Omar. And to the woman he said, Pasuk Tezayin, Perigimel and Bereshis, Eli'isha Omar, Harbeth, Arbe, I will bring, there will be much, very, very much, it's Vaynech, the Hireinech, the Eitzim Telimadam. To translate it for you in English, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your suffering and your childbearing in pain shall you bear children. But the word that Hashem said is, I will give you a lot of Arbe. Same word, Aleph, Reish, Beis, Hey. Spelled the same way, it's not Arba. Arbu, it's Arbeh, the same letter, the same words, but a locust, the same word here. Hashem said, it's time to pay for what you did to Chava. Chava, right, got punished with Arbeh, that she's going to have a lot of pain. Now I'm going to give you the other Arbeh, which is a lot of locusts. You, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make this, this is Torah. You cannot make this stuff up. So that was why Moshe Rabbeinu came to Paro specifically here to take out the Nachash. Okay. Then he says, I'm not going to say everything that I said last night. Okay, so there's another Gematria. Moshe was Hevel and, and he was Kayin. Paro was Kayin. He speaks a lot about this. But I want to tell you one more thing in here, which is a little scary. I don't want you to scare you, but I think it's very important. What happened in Choshech, everybody? Why did Hashem really bring Choshech to Mitzrayim? Four-fifths of all the Jews died in Choshech. 
600,000 men, 600, men came out, there were 3 million men. Four-fifths of the Jewish nation died in the darkness because they, uh, because they did not believe in the Geula. They didn't want the Geula. They were happy. We got our watermelon and our pits and our, and our, and our pickles and our, and, our, and our food. And we had a job. And, and why are we going to go follow this into, into the Midbar and, and God and all these stories? We don't want any part of it. We're happy. Leave us alone. We're slaves. We're happy. How many times they told that to Moshe Rabbeinu? So they didn't want to leave. So Moshe, came, Moshe Rabbeinu said, I have, I have the secret code. Hashem wants us to leave. They're like, we're not going. We're not leaving. So Hashem said, whoever doesn't believe in me, whoever's not leaving, will die in a triumph. But he didn't want the Egyptians to see the Jews dying. So for three days, six days he brought Choshet, but for three days he brought such darkness that the Egyptians couldn't move from their chairs. And during those three days, God buried, the Jews buried, four-fifths of their nation. So even though Mitzrayim was a big geula, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. Because you have to figure, if four-fifths of the nation died, that means everybody's uncles and cousins and friends. I mean, it's like a holocaust. I think in the Holocaust, four-fifths of the Jewish population died. Same thing. It's a Holocaust. The trial was a Holocaust. Tell you what the Chidot says. The reason God brought darkness to Mitzrayim, the Yemusu Rishay Yisrael, Shalai HaYeroitzim says that all the Rishab, all the bad people in the Jewish nation died because they didn't want to leave Mitzrayim. The Loi Yiro HaMitzrim, Hashem didn't want the Mitzrim to see the Jews dying. V'chein. He says, V'chein. And so, Kishiyavo HaMoshiach, when Moshiach will come, Yiyechoshech Tesvav Yamin, the world will go into total darkness for 15 days. Atomic cloud causes darkness, maybe a meteor, maybe who knows? We don't know how. But the Chidah is Rocha Kodesh, and he says that for 15 days, there will be darkness on this world. I guess your cell phones will not work for those 15 days. The satellites will be out. V'yomusu Rishay Yisrael. And the, the, the Risham of Yisrael, right? The Risham of Yisrael, the bad people of the Jewish nation, will die. And I believe that the Jayah says four-fifths of our nation will die when Mashiach comes. In this darkness. What does the Chidot translate with Shem? Like, people don't keep Shabbos? People don't eat kosher? People who are, like, what is a Russia? Who are these people that are going to die? He says, who are the Risham that are going to die when Mashiach comes? She'enam roitzim begeula. Those are the people who do not want redemption. Who do not want Mashiach. He says, Zayar HaKadosh and Pasha Shmos. Our job is to make sure that four-fifths of the Jewish nation doesn't die like in Mitzrayim. Our job is to talk to our friends and to people that are maybe not religious and talk about the Geula and that the Shekhinah and there'll be a time when everyone's going to see God and you have to want this, not to be happy with your house and your money and your iPhone 6 and your food and your flights and your, and your, and your midwinter vacation and all this other stuff. They were happy in Mitzrayim. Yes, we don't have a Shem, we don't have a base of Migdash, but hey, for Sukkot we're in a hotel and for Pesach we're in a hotel and we're here and we're there, we're having a good time and everything is great. So ah, it's not the end of the world, we have freedom of, you know, in God we trust, freedom speech, freedom of religion, in America it's a great place, right? Hashem says, whoever doesn't want the Geula is not going to see the Geula. It's a chidah. It's very scary.
very scary. So we need to, to go into ourselves and we need to realize that we need to want the Geula or you're not going to see the Geula. There's going to be darkness for 15 days and when the light comes out, there's going to be a lot of people missing. So you're like, right, Walter, why are you telling me this? And because the answer is that the more people you bring into the light, the less people that are going to be missing. That's our job, to bring light to the nations, but our first job is to bring light to ourselves, to bring light to each other. And that's a very important lesson. I want to end tonight. So yesterday, yesterday? Yeah. Uh, what was yesterday? Tuesday? I went on Tuesday, I went on Monday. I went on, I went on Monday to Lakewood. I went on Monday to Lakewood. Yeah, I believe so. I went on Monday to Lakewood. I gave out 3,000 Sefer Zichronos to elementary school girls from 5th grade to 8th grade. The book that I have where you write every day, thank you Hashem, thank you, right, that I created. So somebody came along and said to me, Rabbi Wallstein, I will, I will support this. I want you to give out 3,000 of them. So I went to five schools yesterday. It was the best time I had in a very long time. Fifth through eighth grade, they're happy. They're excited about Yiddishkeit. It's not like high school kids are like, you know, they still believe in Hashem, but you know, not like, where's Hashem? Prove me Hashem. And they're excited. And I got up and I spoke. And I gave out these 3,000. And they've been asking me for these books for months and weeks. And I'm like, I don't have time. I have to, because I have to not only give them out, I have to explain what you write, how you write, why you write. You know, go through the whole thing. And I spoke to them, you know, about what does Hakar Satov mean? Everyone thinks Hakar Satov means thankfulness and gratitude. That's not what it means. Tadaraba means thank you. Hakar Satov means the recognition of good. What do you mean recognition of good? If you come in and you put $10 million on the table, so I have to recognize it's good? Of course that's good! Hakar Satov is when things look bad, you're able to find the good and the bad. The best example I spoke about is the rose. Right? What is the most beautiful flower in the world? The rose. How do you know the rose is the most beautiful flower in the world? Because when Shlomo Melech wanted to compare us to something beautiful, he called us in Shirashirim, the roses amongst the thorns. So he, went, he didn't say the carnations or the gladiolas or the birds of paradise because he felt, he, he was the smartest man. The rose is the most beautiful flower in the world. So I told you that, that Abraham Lincoln said, right? I quote him only once in a while. He said, there are people that are upset and downtrodden because roses have thorns. And there are people who celebrate because thorns have roses. It just depends how you look at it. So I said this to these girls, and I said, and why do you think Hashem made roses with thorns? I mean, tulips don't have thorns. Carnations don't have thorns. Actually, I don't know of another flower that has thorns. And I know pretty much every flower. So why do you do this? And the answer is, because it's the most beautiful flower. I used to have a garden in Muncie, and I made flowers for my mother and vegetables and that. And every year, the chipmunks and the skunks and the cats and the and the and the, and the, and the squirrels—they ate up all my flowers and they ate up all my vegetables. I was like, I would find one cucumber that made it because it was a never cucumber, and I guess they didn't even want it. So why would I want it, right? But there was one thing that they never ate: our rose bush. I have a rose bush and flat bush. None of the cats, nothing eats, and they got some creatures walking around in Flatbush. Nobody eats my rose, no, no, possums and stuff. Nobody touches my rosebush. Why? Because the most beautiful thing in the world, Hashem protected with thorns. So when, when, when Shlomo Melech says that we are, we are roses amongst the thorns, what Shlomo Melech is saying that yes, we are very beautiful, but don't worry, all the guy are trying to eat, they're trying to eat you, they're trying to eat you, you have nothing to worry about, because we have thorns. 
The Romans tried, they're dead. The Greeks tried, they're dead. The Babylonians, the Persians tried, they're dead. They all wanted the rose. We got thorns, baby. You want us? You're going to pay a price. So, Hakar Satov is looking at a rose. Actually, sometimes when I buy for Shabbos, the guy, and it's the funny thing, the guy in Avenue N who sells the flowers, he got like 40 band-aids on his hand because he takes the thorns off the roses. All right? So sometimes I'm walking out and he didn't, he didn't take the thorn, right? And I'm, I buy these roses for my BCA girls, my high school girls. So I'm carrying all these roses and sometimes he didn't take them all off and I'm like, ow! Oh, and starts bleeding. I'm like, you know, hello, you know, blood test. What's going on over here? And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. That, that roses have thorns. Because if they didn't, I would have these roses in my hands because some bird or animal would have eaten them. So that's how Karsatov. Karsatov is that a thorn just made a hole in your hand and you're like, thank you. Because that thorn is protecting the rose. So I was wondering, I, I spoke to five schools. Unbelievable. Lake was unbelievable. One school had 2,200 girls. One school. Eighth grade, 358 students. One grade. It was for me because I see a lot of pain and a lot of disaster in, in Yiddishkeit. To do what I did yesterday was such a chizik because I looked at all these little beautiful girls and their faces and that innocent face and that excitement. And I'm like, wow. Now I know why Haman, when he met the kids, the Jewish kids, he said, we lost. There's just, just a, such a... Uh, potential and happiness and hope and we just lose that in high school and then by the time we're older than that forget about it right we, we don't have that many wrinkles we should have more wrinkles and I was like it just gave me such a physics. 3,000 little kids right all excited with their little book in front of them because they gave it out and I'm like Hashem because I do ask questions I'm like why today I wanted to give these books out two months ago and a month ago, and now I'm going away. I was thinking, maybe I'll give it in three weeks, and maybe I'll give it for Purim. I don't know, because the whole thing happened in Achashverosh. And for some reason on my calendar, Monday was like, Monday, Monday, Monday. So I called them up last week. I'm like, I'm coming. Set it up. I told my guy in Lakewood, set it up. It came out Monday. And I, I don't believe anything happens by chance. So I'm going into the third school. And this is my book that I wrote on Let There Be Rain. But I didn't put any of my, any of the stuff that's in this book on a certain day that Rabbi Finkelman did. He took all the different days and all the lessons and he put this day, that day, this day. I said, you know what? Let me see yesterday what's in the book for yesterday. There are two stories in this whole book about me. There's some stories that I say, but two stories about me personally. I opened this book before the third school. And I'm like, Hashem, why today? Let me see what I wrote in this book today. So it's the 29th of Tevez was yesterday. Lesson 119. This is what I wrote. Actually, what he wrote, what he put down. Our sages into that each time we take care of our bodily needs, we should wash our hands and then say, and thank Hashem for this marvelous structure and function of the human body. Rabbi Wallerstein related. So one of the only two stories that I spoke about myself was yesterday. And it happened yesterday on the 29th of Tevez. So he put it in the book on the 29th of Tevez. I totally forgot about this story. What happened? As we recite Yashayatza a few times a day, year after year, after year, we have no appreciation. He says, it was a Friday morning two years ago on yesterday's date, on the 29th of Tevez. When I woke up in terrible pain, my stomach significantly bloated. 
I was admitted to the hospital emergency room where it was discovered that I had intestinal blockage. Hashem should protect you. Never in your life you should ever feel anything like this. It is the most painful thing. And I had kidney stones, so I know what's supposed to be the most painful thing. This is right up with it. I just woke up, and my stomach was totally bloated. I was admitted to the hospital, and they found that I had intestinal blockage. This was preventing the food in my stomach from going through the digestive tract, and that was the reason for my excruciating pain. They inserted a tube into my nose. Oh, I remember it. Down my throat and into my stomach. I asked him when he, he said, I want to do that. I'm like, well, what happens if you don't do that? He said, well, then you'll die. I'm like, okay, then do it. <laughs> and slowly suctioned the food out of my stomach. This took until late Shabbos afternoon. I went to shul in the hospital with this thing in my nose. It was like, not normal. You can't imagine how terribly uncomfortable I was. During those difficult days when I was in so much pain, I asked the doctors for morphine. I was going crazy and I knew from my kidney stones that if you give me morphine, right, it's a painkiller, it won't hurt me so much. So I asked them for morphine or some other painkiller. But my request was denied. I even asked them for Tylenol. They wouldn't give me Tylenol. They explained to me that though we don't feel it, there is a constant movement in our digestive system that allows the passage of food. How does the food move from your stomach out? Is your intestines keep, it's always moving. All those miles of intestines, they're moving. And as they move, they move your food through the system. But the movement would eventually release the blockage that was causing my problem. But morphine would slow down the movement. I certainly gained a new appreciation for the wondrous smooth functioning of the human body and for the blessing of Asayatza. I also gained new amazement that there are actually doctors who claim that they don't believe in the Creator. How can anyone with a heightened understanding of how the human body works not believe in the Creator? So yesterday, I gave out 3,000 books on Hakar Satov the day that I went into a hospital two years ago in all that pain. And then I understood that what goes around comes around. And actually today, he, he writes, I'm not, I'm not going to go into he writes, right? Watson continued um, that I appreciated every doctor and every nurse that came into my room and tried to help me. Even if they told me, I can't help you right now, the x-ray, you know, we have to wait for the room, whatever, but that they spoke to me. And I said, I learned a very important lesson. That when someone calls me, don't hit the ignore button. Even if you're going to say, I can't talk to you right now, just that you answer the phone, and you're like, I will talk to you. I learned a lot of lessons from that, you know, from that hospital stay. What? Maimonides. So, Baruch Hashem. So I, want, I just want to tell you, I'm going to read that after, then I'm going to let them go. I just want to tell you, I don't have the book in front of me, but I want to tell you the story. It's a two-second story. So it's in Chicken Soup for the Soul. I saw the story this week. I forgot his name. He was a Vietnam vet who stepped on a mine in a minefield and lost both his legs. And one day he was in his house and he hears some woman screaming from next door. So he rolls over to next door but they had this shrubbery and he couldn't get his wheelchair through the shrubbery. So he, with his arms, he pulls himself over the wheelchair and he rolls, sort of rolls and crawls to, through the property to see why she's screaming. Why is she screaming? Because her little baby is at the bottom of the pool. Now, anything in Chicken Soup of the, of the Soul is 100% true. They go through the story 10 times, check it out. So, this guy, who has no feet, jumps into the pool and pulls the kid out. And 
puts the kid on the next to the pool and starts the kid's blue, not breathing, this little girl, and he starts doing CPR. And he's doing CPR and he's doing CPR and the woman's like, she's dead, she's dead, she's not breathing. And he's like, lady, this girl, your daughter, will breathe. She will be alive, I guarantee it. And he starts doing CPR and he starts doing CPR and he's like, my breath will become her breath and all of a sudden she starts throwing up and spitting out all the water and she starts breathing. And then, you know, the fire engine and everybody comes. She turns to him and she says, how did you know? How did you know? She was blue, she wasn't breathing. How did you know that you made that statement to me that, with that, the way you looked at me, it wasn't like hope, it was like you knew that this girl would breathe again. How did you know? And he said, when I was in Vietnam and I stepped on that mine and both my feet got blown off, I was laying there in a minefield and a little Vietnamese girl took me and started to drag me and said, American, I be your feet. I be your feet. Don't worry, I be your feet. And she dragged me to her little, you know, town, wherever she lived. She dragged me there, and I was saved. He said, I never saw that little girl again. But I knew that the minute I saw your daughter at the bottom of that pool, that God was giving me a chance to give back. That little girl said, she will be my feet. I decided that with your little girl, I will be her lungs. And I will be her ear. And I knew that God would give me a chance to return a favor to a little girl. Hakaras Hatov. Mida Keneged Mida. And you don't always have to be right. And freckles and wrinkles are very beautiful. Thank you very much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.